0: Greetings all. Welcome to Aquarian Diary. I'm your host, John Irving. It is July 9th, 2023. The following is a second conversation with Dr. Scott Becker, a clinical psychologist. I published our first conversation here on my channel on July 2nd of 2023. You may want to listen to that episode prior to listening to this one if you haven't already. If you find this type of content interesting, I encourage you to subscribe to my channel and to click the bell in order to receive notifications when new episodes are published. If you do find this valuable, you can support my work by sharing this with your friends or other interested parties. If you have a website, perhaps you can add a link on it to my channel or my own website at AquarianDiary.com. Many thanks to Scott for taking a considerable amount of time to converse with me. This is a significant volunteer effort, so any support you can provide is greatly appreciated. I can assure you that this is not a profit-making enterprise. Not even close. Hi, Scott. How are you today? Good. I'm excited to do this again. Me too. You and I have been chatting a bit, and we have too many things to talk about, it seems. Well, I blame the world. (laughs) It it is crazy, isn't it? Like, it's just like, there's so many... uh, Like, even last time when we talked, it was... Two hours and it it went by quickly, but it also man, I was just cutting myself off so many times. I'm like, no, don't go down that rabbit hole, don't go down that rabbit hole. But they're all interesting. Yeah, it branches
1: out. Oh,
0: absolutely. Like there's so many things. So one of the things that uh, there could be very dire implications if I don't bring this up. Uh Helen from Irish Granny Tarot was um insisting that I ask you what your perspective or thoughts were in the context of the kind of work and training that you have about reincarnation
1: yeah I watched your interview with her and uh, I remember that coming up so I'm happy to talk about it yeah how does
0: that fit into the whole paradigm or or
1: worldview of you as a psychologist
0: and Hillman and others because I think what she's getting at is that it could explain why some people behave in certain ways and others don't. <laughs> Theoretically. Because of karmic baggage. Yeah. And their state of evolution. You know, like why would some right, people sure. go be MAGA or want to participate in things like dogmatic religions and so forth? Yeah. Fundamentalism, you know, stuff that uh, might be very foreign to us.
1: Absolutely. And there's a lot that, mainstream or you could say conventional or traditional psychology has to say about that but in terms of reincarnation it's really not part of the model in most western types of psychology including hillman's and archetypal psychology because at the time he started it and i think by temperament and training he was differentiating himself from eastern traditions the irony being he really opened up to psychology because of an encounter that he had with a guru in india as a very young man in his 20s and the encounter sent him up into the himalayas where he had a very humiliating nightmare instead of an inspiring transcendent dream And he was so humiliated and ashamed that it sent him to that therapy, really, in Zurich, in Switzerland, at the Jung Institute. So he entered there as a patient. He entered there in what he would later call the valley of the soul and not the peaks of the spirit. So I think partly because of that experience in India, which he actually found very exciting and interesting and inspiring. And he actually wrote a commentary to the account of this guru about his kundalini awakening, and that account is actually in the volume that I edited, uh, volume seven. It's called In Human Relations. So I think he may have been distancing a bit, and it was also a somewhat pragmatic move. So he grounded his framework, which was a loose framework, uh, wasn't intended to be a fully cohesive theory, but he grounded his thinking in western traditions and went as far back as the greek myths where he spent a lot of time using those images and stories to understand what was going on in contemporary western culture so the short answer to your question is the reason i am open to reincarnation and karma and the eastern traditions is because i started studying Parallels between Eastern and Western thought when I was in graduate school, but it was really outside the framework of what I was learning. So I was reading a book by Avens, who's a philosopher, and he is called Western Nirvana. And it's looking at the parallels between Eastern thought and several Western philosophers. So I started thinking about it then. And later when I got interested in astrology, I branched off into evolutionary astrology. so my my thinking on the subject is all you could call it uh, extracurricular. but it's it's critical, and I find that perspective useful. I think most of my clients don't share that framework, but a few are open to it, and I'm definitely thinking that uh, you know past lives do inform what we're doing now. and that could easily inform the sort of political and social and cultural and religious trajectories that everybody's on you know or dharma uh uh, this is a this is here
0: we're already branching off because i want to ask you about the nightmare that hillman had but i also want to carry on with this notion or discussion about uh, reincarnation because i would think that a lot of people are probably kind of curious like oh what happened is was the nightmare that he had his kundalini awakening or were those separate events
1: they were really separate events the the nightmare he, he had gone up into the mountains hoping for a big dream because he was struggling as a novelist and so he was hoping for peak experience and instead he dreamed would you like me to just share it's not a long dream yeah sure i'm pretty sure people would be curious yeah it's in it's in the volume one of his biography that i commented on and i was actually the first person publicly to try to interpret the dream so it was a little bit tricky because you know he's two generations my senior and we didn't really have any form of direct personal or professional relationship he had just asked me to participate because he had seen some of my writing but the dream that he intentionally shared with the biographer with dick russell was of his grandmother and his mother lying in a bunk bed and that's it that's the text we get
0: huh
1: and that was a nightmare
0: what was that what What was nightmarish about it
1: i think it because it was personal because it was about the mother because it was the opposite of what he had wanted. He wanted something to expand his awareness. And then instead he was thrown backwards into what felt, <laughs> I think, very personal. And mundane a bit, you know? Mund- I think it was that's that's what I wrote about in the biography is it was the mundane aspect of it that really threw him back down the mountain almost literally.
0: Yeah, like I didn't climb this mountain to dream about my mother for crying out
1: loud, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and he that's and then he went to uh Zurich, he is. He had been reading Jung. He was aware of Jung's thought while he was writing his novel. But he went to Zurich to study there. That's the sort of rational reason. And the emotional reason is I think he really wanted to explore himself and to make sense of why he was stuck and why he dreamed of his mother and his grandmother when he wanted to hear his calling. And, and in a strange way, I think it was.
0: He wanted something more profound, which uh, Absolutely. I would hope for as well. Now not that mothers and grandmothers aren't profound at all but well they certainly can be
1: yeah I, I think that experience of setback disappointment disillusionment shame humiliation being thrown back into the mundane of the everyday world does inform his work mm he writes a lot, and I, I was thinking we might get into this today in terms of... <laughs> we haven't finished with reincarnation yet. No, we haven't. But, but you know, the, the role of the ego in psychology and the role of the soul and what lies beyond the self yeah, and all of those larger questions, I, I think he had to approach those from a much more grounded and humble perspective. And that dream, that nightmare, as he called it, certainly accomplish that
0: it's the microcosm versus the macrocosm yes and the two are inextricably linked and neither is more important than the other
1: i agree and the essay that i wrote to introduce that volume talked about the triple goddess and especially the version of her in north africa and the role that medusa played in that tripartite deity and so the mother and the grandmother are you know the the mother and the crone in those older mythologies and that's that's what i started to dig into mm. with with an eye toward ecological issues well here's another
0: obvious point is that if he hadn't and sorry i don't want to switch topics again but if he hadn't had that
1: dream he wouldn't have gone to zurich probably i agree if he'd had something that moved him up the ladder he might have gone back to being a creative novelist rather than a creative therapist and psychologist
0: so and we wouldn't and we might not be talking about him right now i doubt i would be here yeah
1: so i mean that,
0: that alone is quite significant
1: yeah these things have ripple effects across generations don't they yeah i mean you
0: know even a you know something as small as an experience i've had many experiences like that uh, dreams i've literally had dreams that have changed my life completely completely and in fact not only that but i knew that as a result of the actions I would take from the because of the dream that my life would be changed forever exactly yeah so it's not trivial
1: no it isn't and and the tradition that Hellman went toward was not Freudian it was Jungian and Jung of course has many many volumes written about transpersonal dimensions and and jung used astrology and jung was psychic and had visions of the future so the model that hillman was drawn toward is profound on its own terms and then he did a lot with that when he sort of moved out of the jung institute and broke away from it and started developing his own version of it so yeah it's uh it's really about all the transpersonal energies that we think about in tarot and astrology, and other esoteric traditions. It's everything beyond the self.
0: Mm. And uh, so, um, you you because you went there, I have to ask about to the kundalini awakening, how and when that occurred.
1: So for Hillman, he was when he was in India and when he was writing, attempting to write his novel, he was in a long-term romantic relationship with a Swedish woman and they were to be married while they were at the Jung Institute while they were studying. And he was invited to become an analyst there. And they went back to Sweden for the wedding. And uh, there's a full account of this in volume one of the biography again, but, but he essentially describes a Kundalini awakening that was physically incredibly disruptive and uncomfortable, while she was telling him about her cold feet and a side trip that she took right before the wedding to visit an old flame. So he was overwhelmed and he had this huge surge of energy and went to a mirror in, in the bedroom or the bathroom, it's not clear to me, but he, in looking in the mirror, he saw some form of demonic or demonic face. In conventional psychiatric terms, you'd call it a visual hallucination. But in these wow. other traditions, it could be all kinds of things, right? So, and that's not elaborated on. That experience is not directly interpreted by the biographer or further described by Hillman. I think it was a rather charged and very private experience, but he wanted it to be in the biography. And I think it's there for anybody who wants to continue to unpack it from whatever perspective they have mm. but that was a beginning of a huge i think descent for him uh you know a dissolution of his thinking his identity and i think it ultimately connected him to this deeper layer of the psyche of the world but it was unsettling to say the least and that marriage eventually ended, but not not because of that kundalini awakening. The, the the wedding went on, and he went on, and he had sort of a parallel process. He, On the one hand, he was studying everything and becoming very educated and skilled as an analyst. And at the same time, I think there was this other layer of his being that was pulling at him, pushing at him, pulling him down encouraging him to go beyond what he was learning intellectually. So not an integrated process necessarily. And I think that's the case for a lot of people who study psychology. There's another layer that they don't necessarily pull into their training. I think sometimes in their training analysis, you know, in their therapy, they become an analyst. But a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists in the States don't have that kind of therapy And even if they do, they don't necessarily put that part of their experience into it. And not everyone has that kind of awakening or descent. How how did he describe the manifestations of
0: the Kundalini awakening uh, physiologically?
1: It wasn't an elaborate description, and I I could pull the volume and read it to you if we want to pause. But but basically, uh, surges of energy rising up through his body. While he was lying down on the bed they were they were talking had an intimate moment and she was sharing her experience I think with her ex on partner. she hadn't been married before but so this is
0: clearly after he had been to Zurich he goes back to India
1: the sequence was he goes to Kashmir to write and he travels through Africa and he's struggling and then he's sent to meet with this Guru semi-casually and he's pretty mesmerized by the experience and the guru has this long manuscript of his of his own elaborate years-long kundalini awakening and he sort of pockets that the the guru his name gopi krishna uh encourages him to have a journey up in the mountains to have some kind of transformative experience but his fantasy of that was, was again that it would inspire him to become a great writer and instead humiliated him, and then after that went to Zurich and was planning to get married and become an analyst. And then while he was getting married, he had the kundalini experience, the disruption, and the vision of the face in the mirror. Okay. Fascinating. Yeah, it's pretty complex, and it's a lot more than he shared while he was working professionally. And really, you could say while he was alive, because he died before the volume came out. So these were disclosures that he thought important to understanding his work and the challenge was then to integrate the two because his biography doesn't explain his work but it does reflect it and so he brought me in to try to strike that balance or to to show how the ideas and the life mirrored each other but didn't define each other so it's is it pretty challenging task um I was going to say earlier
0: that one of the seminal books for me was Autobiography of a Yogi by Yogananda. Huh? And that was published in 1946, so before the 50s. But it was really in the 60s when a lot of this, when a lot of the Eastern philosophies and traditions started to become part of the, I wouldn't go so far as to say mainstream culture in the West, but started to have an influence. You know, the Beatles right. did all that. Yeah. I was thinking everything. the Beatles, right? It's, yeah. It, you know, it became, it, this was a huge shift. So, so along with that came ideas like reincarnation, which yes, there were, there were really kind of fringe groups, like, you know, back in the 1800s, late 1800s, you had the Theosophical Society who, mm-hmm. who wrote a lot about these kinds of things. Very, very deep esoteric material. Um, and um but again it didn't really there wasn't like a there wasn't something on a significant scale until the 1960s and so talking about how notions like reincarnation the concept addresses a lot of questions and makes sense sort of intellectually because it explains so much about our experience uh but like i said it wasn't really embraced in any capacity to, to speak of in Western culture until, you know, just like 50 years ago
1: or 60 years ago. I agree. The, the, the professional study of it coincided with the study of psychedelics and the work of Timothy Leary right at Harvard and then Ram Das. So there, there, there was definitely interest in past life regression with the uh, the perinatal and the natal experience and then the the prenatal consciousness and everything that that implies so that they were experimenting a lot with altered states of consciousness and expanding it mm-hmm. th- through dealing with the birth trauma infinitely backwards as well as potentially infinitely forward so that 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 kind of research and this i'm thinking of a book by ralph metzner called ecology of consciousness and he he points out this has been talked about elsewhere but he points out that the nixon administration essentially saw that expanded awareness through lsd use was creating an anti-war movement and so the war on drugs began and the fashional study of lsd and other hallucinogens as a means of treating psychiatric conditions healing you could say more broadly was really aggressively marginalized and stopped the funding stopped and all mainstream professional study of it went away for a good long time and it's only recently that that's starting to come back
0: well i i'd go further and say that it wasn't just uh because of the countercultural movement with respect to vietnam but it, that it was also there was probably a uh, religious influence on this as well, well for sure yes like they don't want people to have direct personal experiences. You know, first of all, they probably think that they're dark. And secondly, it would threaten their hegemony.
1: Now if we have direct access to higher consciousness, then the hierarchy of the institutions is less important or necessary in some cases. So I agree, there there's a power issue across the board. Right. And it's only
0: just now and it's only just beginning that that um that the backlash to that approach is starting to play out in reality, where we're seeing mm-hmm. in some countries and places where drug laws are, are being relaxed, and that there is more people are more openly discussing, researching and studying certain things like psychedelics and mushrooms and MDMA and stuff like that as uh, I mean, clinical yeah. treatments, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, but that has what it's been decades that this was being repressed and it was even illegal i think to even study some of these substances in the united states was it not
1: it was definitely not funded and i think there were implications about it being made illegal so yes i I think there were many obstacles legal political and economic as well as academic people who did that research were academically marginalized so it just dried up yeah it went away well it's part of the culture wars basically I think so. And that's the broader context.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm not, uh, I don't necessarily advocate it. I've certainly had some experiences myself, both positive and very negative, I should add. Um, Mm. But I'm not uh, prejudiced against it. I'm just not 100% convinced that it's necessary because I've had a lot of uh, mystical experiences, very powerful ones that had
1: nothing to do with substances at all. Exactly. And if we want to get into this for half a second, Metzner's book book is a lifetime's work in the field of altered consciousness, not simply through psychedelics or other drugs, but also through meditation, drumming. He goes back to much older shamanic practices that especially in the Northern Hemisphere involved rhythmic drumming to reach altered states. And he points out that there was a lot less biodiversity in the northern hemisphere and it was more in the southern hemisphere that the plant biodiversity led to experimentation so he says both can lead to these higher states or broader states of consciousness that's very interesting i hadn't thought about the geography of it i hadn't either uh struck me as really important Mm -hmm. and then he draws parallels to alchemy and yogic traditions he's basically saying that both the western and the Eastern forms of divination are essentially offshoots of these older shamanic traditions. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: (laughs) We're just starting to discover that now, you know, there's been a trend. God it has been going on now for what, 10 or 15 years, like the whole ayahuasca thing and Peru and everything. I know, I know numerous people who've gone down there and done that.
1: I do too. And uh, some celebrities have been quite open about it. Sting comes to mind, the musician. Has a vivid description of his ayahuasca experience in his biography. Yeah, autobiography. Yeah.
0: Well, I have. There's a lot I could say about that, but that would be a whole separate episode. Of course, um, because you know, um, the problem, if there is a problem with these sorts of uh, ceremonies or rituals, uh, is that you know people can be in quite a vulnerable state, and nope. you have to be super careful who allow who you allow to have control in those situations
1: yeah Metzner's phrase is everything depends on one's mindset and the setting so set and setting Mm. and if either of those aren't properly introduced and framed around the experience it can become extremely negative
0: yeah well um yeah I agree with you let me circle back to connect to something where we didn't really complete something which is this question of of why the psychological community or practicing psychologists haven't really explored the extra-dimensional spiritual Mm transcendent aspects of the kinds of things that we're talking about the kinds of things that you studied independently outside of your curricular activities
1: well i think one answer is that the Students of psychology were entering into it as a social science, not as a spiritual practice or an art form. So, a lot of this has to do with, for example, my degrees in clinical psychology, which started in a hospital setting during World War II. So, this was an offshoot of the medical world in the States. And it carries a lot of medical background, medical language, medical terminology diagnosis, treatment, a lot of the lingo is very much based on Western medicine. And the people who entered the profession for its first several decades were identified as social scientists, as people who used research, empirical research, to ground their practice, which is not to say that there weren't broader traditions but jung started in europe freud started in europe and they did find some places in the states but they weren't as often within the academic institutions that were granting degrees they tended to be diploma granting institutes so some western therapists psychologists psychiatrists and others Gravitated toward that and basically got a postdoctoral certificate in some form of psychoanalysis. But at a certain point, there was a backlash in the US. And I think that has to do with US culture partly. But the backlash was well, there's too much hierarchy, there's too much mystery surrounding psychoanalysis, Freudian or Jungian. And the humanism movement within psychology was moving toward more egalitarian practice and toward more humanistic philosophy. So less about a layered or dynamic, psychodynamic psyche, and more in terms of wholeness and transcendence and, uh, and a heart-centered, a client-centered practice. So the the pendulum swung away from analysis in part because of the legacy of boundary violations. There were sexual relationships between analysts and patients, and a lot of that was also occurring at the Jung Institute in Zurich while Hillman was there. So that's part of his backstory. But the backlash kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater because then therapy in the U.S. became more mechanical. It became more a set of techniques and practices rather than a framework, rather than a deeper understanding of the psyche. And at a certain point, we'll just call it the 70s, The insurance companies started paying for psychotherapy and at that point i think we could say there was a strong corporate influence to encourage models that were shorter more practical more aimed at symptom reduction and less on development of expanding consciousness and a deeper understanding of self and one's place in the world Mm. so the insurance companies were saying well we're only going to support these empirically supported models that Get rid of your symptoms and get you back to work as quickly as possible. And if you're not doing that, you're not practicing with scientific backing. And it might even be unethical for you to continue to see people for a longer period of time. Hmm. That was in the 70s or 80s? Started in the 70s. I would say it really took hold in the 80s and into the 90s. Managed care is the term. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, of course, you can't measure any of the esoteric aspects of reality, can you?
1: Not in the ways that the institutes and the grant funding agencies were refining. In fact, there is a lot of empirical support for the efficacy of deeper forms of psychotherapy. But, but the models they were looking at made some false assumptions. For example, that efficiency is better, that, that a shorter model is better, right? that immediate symptom alleviation is better. I mean, if you look at the Kundalini stuff, uh, initially you get worse. Yeah. Yes, And that was one of those slogans that I heard early in my graduate training is the therapy always makes it worse, which of course is a bit of a paradoxical statement because eventually there's an integrative phase, but initially it's a disintegrating experience.
0: Yeah. A lot of people uh, do not want to look at or muck around with their darkness, essentially, right?
1: Right. And I, I would say some of the pushback came from American patients who then under their humanism became called clients as patients was considered to be pathologizing. So, so I think the, the the American corporate capitalist system encourages us to be officially rational, optimistic, forward thinking, practical, pragmatic, independent, not, not to delve, not to descend. And productive. Exactly. Especially that especially that
0: (laughs) you gotta get stuff done we we need to be out there what's the point of life if
1: you're not doing stuff right generating wealth for the for the plutocrats yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) and hillman for his part acknowledged this and wrote a very important book in the 90s called we've had 100 years of psychotherapy and the world's getting worse Mm. and he tried to radically expand the focus of at least depth models to include political ecological and economic as well as cultural issues he's saying if we focus exclusively on our personal childhood we might be missing everything else that's going on so he was probably 30 years ahead of his time there i got it was an important useful book yeah
0: i gotta throw in something there just because you created an opportunity when we first spoke, our first conversation, one of the things that came to my mind very clearly was that back in the 1980s, when I was publishing a New Age magazine mm. in Atlantic, Canada, and a big part of what we did was to build community. So we had quite a few events and social things and stuff like that. And that included, you know, the psychics, uh, the human potential movement, the hippies, the the people doing alternative health care and stuff like that. Mm. So. But there was a one of the components of that was what we at the time kind of referred to as the human potential movement, and it would have been, right. it would have been more sort of aligned with things like psychology. You know, like how do I make myself more efficient? <laughs> right? How do I yeah. fix? How do I fix myself and my relationships and maybe even make more money and stuff? Now I'm not saying it was purely uh, motivated uh, by materialism. It wasn't at all. It's just that certain people gravitated to that approach because to them it was it was very rational and uh, at the time there was a lot of figures and uh, courses and workshops and stuff that you could do like est do you ever you know anything about est oh
1: yeah okay i haven't studied it, but yes yes that was a
0: thing at the time right yes and it was kind of like about dissecting yourself and putting yourself back together in a way that was better (laughs) yeah My, my point is is that is that Back then I used to kind of have, you know, intellectual discussions with some of these people. There's one person in particular who actually went on to, to create a very incredible retreat center. Uh, you know, it was like a million dollar thing at the time, back then that was a lot of money. Yeah. And he actually had courses at Dalhousie university here in Halifax. But anyway, my approach was back then, cause I had had transcendent experiences and I would say to him i'm like why do you want to go muck around in your psychology because it's kind of like a quagmire you know as opposed to something like transcendence where you can experience enlightenment and higher awareness that just literally makes everything kind of redundant in some ways that was that was a big debate that i had with him his name was charlie um a lot because I was like, okay, this stuff is all really interesting, but I don't want to get stuck there.
1: Yeah, and I think um, is it, is there a question, or do you want me to?
0: Well, yeah, I'm kind of. I wanted to throw that out because because um, I just see this potential for people to get so uh, fixated on those aspects of themselves and sort of miss the big picture.
1: Yeah, and I think that's that's a a core. Dilemma that Hillman tackles head-on, partly in an essay called Peaks and Veils, and knowing his background now, knowing this nightmare that he had, you can hear the, the echoes of that in this essay. But he's trying to differentiate soul, which is classically identified with psyche and imagination, from spirit, from pneuma. And he points out, for example, in earlier translations of the Bible, there were two different terms. There was psyche and pneuma, and they weren't conflated. One was higher and more airy and fiery, and the other was lower and watery and more earthy, more tied to the body, more tied to the material world. And he tries to pull apart these two ideas and carve out this middle ground for psychology, for psyche. His claim, and I think I think he does. I think, personally, an admirable job of this. It's not to dwell in the mundane, materialistic, personalistic, literal aspects of one's past, but it is to cultivate a soulful, reflective, non-literal, imaginative perspective on the things of the world. So it it helps us deliteralize, see through, personify and then connect to spirit. You know, I think there's, in, in the sequence, he doesn't emphasize spirit at all, but he acknowledges that there's a there's a relationship between the soul and the spirit.
0: Well, yeah, I wasn't saying that to be critical of Hillman, who, frankly, I haven't read his books.
1: Um, no, but I, I agree with you in the sense that certain kinds of psychoanalysis, and this was his critique, and we've had 100 years of psychotherapy, certain kinds of analysis do lead to literal, ruminative uh, meditations on victimhood and past abuses that don't allow us to move beyond that. So I think it's tricky. He doesn't want to leave behind this world, and he doesn't want to leave behind emotions or imagination or soulful reflection and the value of all that. But he also recognizes that if we're too literal about that, we get stuck. Right. You have to be careful not to get trapped there.
0: And the reason yes. I the reason I described what I did was because I'm basically agreeing with what you said about human having that yeah. having those concerns.
1: Yeah, it's it's tricky, isn't it? I mean, if we if we try to transcend too quickly, then our psyche can sneak in the back door. So people fervently believe in things that are ultimately lacking in compassion or that are quite judgmental and aggressive. So there's a, there's an important relationship between those two layers because we all know of righteous people who don't really understand themselves psychologically or emotionally. Absolutely. And it really clouds their spiritual judgment. So I I think, I think there's a, there's a fruitful dialogue between those two perspectives that I try to bridge. Yeah. That's sort of in the, in the, in the book I'm writing, I'm trying to bridge those two perspectives because certainly we can't get stuck in all the bad things that are happening, whether that's personal or collective. We have to be able to see through it and understand it, and we also have to find a way to move beyond it without becoming dissociatively disengaged or in denial about what's happening. So it's it's a very tricky back and forth, or you could say ultimately an, an integrated awareness that I think everybody's trying to figure out right now.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I want to be clear that I am a huge proponent of people doing their shadow work and I've talked yeah, a lot yeah. about that and I'm, I advocate it. So yeah, I'm not right. saying that, that we should just ignore it. And I, I have also had plenty of experiences where my own uh, unresolved darkness has tripped me up quite significantly. So I have had transcendent experiences, but they have also been interrupted by aspects of myself that I hadn't fully healed or resolved, which brought me back down. So, you know, the two things, though, can both be true sort of simultaneously. It's just that I have seen cases where people get into sort of the maintenance side of themselves and get stuck yeah. there. It becomes yes. habitual becomes habitual, if not even addictive, sometimes.
1: When, and for Hillman, yes, sorry, yes, exactly. For Hillman, the trap then is ego. And his psychology is really, I wouldn't say exclusively organori- organized around this idea, but but he wants to help us deliteralize and de-identify with our ego. Right, And there are a lot of people in psychoanalysis, whether it's Freudian or Jungian, or even people who've read a lot of Hillman who struggle with this idea, who don't quite understand what that means, don't why understand you'd what to do the, it. <laughs> why you'd want to do it. And, and what's what's the what's the process? Yeah. You know, what does that mean? And I, I
0: isn't isn't ego in its simplest form just identifying with glamour and illusion? <laughs> isn't that what it's about?
1: I mean, certainly that's a big part of it, in in the sense that. Whatever, whatever perspective we take habitually without reflection can keep us stuck and prevent us from seeing beyond that so hillman's paradigm is the dream in a dream traditional dream analysis is well let's take everything in the dream as a metaphor except you in the dream except the dream ego and his move which is pretty radical is well wait a minute you're taking that literally, but everything else is metaphorical and imagistic and subjective. So he has this passage. I'm prepared to read it if you want. He has a passage where he's aiming at what he calls an imaginal ego. He says the whole point of the dream is to dream the ego. And the dream tells us a lot about who we think we are. And then it presents all of these other structures and beings and dynamics and images that are telling telling the ego its own limitations helping the ego not to take itself so seriously, helping the ego realize what it's up to. Because there's nothing more unconscious than our conscious waking ego because it's unreflected. It doesn't know what it is. It doesn't understand itself as an image. So his psychology is aimed at that.
0: That's fascinating. There's a lot to unpack, right, in what you just said. Yeah,
1: (laughs) it moves moves into... There is a lot there. And that's why it's complicated. That's why most... Even psychoanalytic and Jungian thinking doesn't necessarily take that same perspective. I mean, Jungians generally say that the ego is the construction ground for the self, that the self is sending images and aspects of of the broader self that are then incorporated into the ego, and the ego expands its awareness. But Hillman's move is the opposite. He wants us to move into soul. In one book, he calls it The Underworld. But it's a it's an expansion at the expense of our everyday heroic fantasies of rational control it's a it's a letting go and a descent and a falling apart initially
0: well, yeah well what it, it, the soul depending on yes. how you define it i mean we're talking about spirituality and transcendence and right yep, yep. so so here's the introduction of these kinds of concepts concepts into you know, Western psych psychology in an academic manner, right? Isn't that what's what we're talking about?
1: it It is. and i I wish it was more accepted within the academies, within the training programs, but it's really not. Most of the students that I had, I was introducing to uh, at on at an internship level. And they would say, "Well, this is everything I should have learned in graduate school. Wow, fascinating. That's literally what one student, what one intern told me once but it's it's understandable. I mean, these things got marginalized for many reasons. It wasn't just a political move. It was to do with our culture wasn't fertile ground for these ideas. And well, H knew that.
0: Think of the friggin Inquisition, I mean, they literally went on a rampage for like <laughs> decades, centuries to like literally exterminate these kinds of ideas
1: literally. yes, yes. it was genocidal it It was, and it was aimed at. As, as Hillman quotes in, in his first big book, Revisioning Psychology, there was a church father that said, we take prisoner every thought for Christ. The the church, not Christianity in its broadest sense, but the church was deliberately co-opting so-called pagan ideas and, and folding them into church traditions. So the pagan holidays became Christmas, Easter, etc. So yeah. there was a Hege- hegemony because it it's the the bible is riddled with this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people don't
0: know that. No, that's true.
1: They that's don't true. tell them.
0: They don't tell them this. Yep. I mean that that's a whole other tangent. That's a huge tangent, but and I don't want to get I don't want to lose my train of thought cuz we were we were onto some really interesting territory, into some really interesting territory there, but uh, it was it was so would you say that Hillman in this sort of field was really the first person to sort of really move this stuff forward in the conversation these aspects and elements of his experience or understanding of reality in that yeah, he's it, largely credited
1: way. he's largely credited with reintroducing the idea of soul and that psychology is is the logos of the psyche it's it's the psyche studying itself and he was very one critique is he has a postmodern psychology but it's basically understanding that every psychological theory is also a fantasy and an image and so he was deconstructing the field right and yes along with jung uh, and and a few others he was introducing this broader perspective there are also transpersonal forms of psychology but yes i would say in the in the late 60s and early 70s he is credited for this much broader definition of psychology when did he first publish something that was
0: notable in the field
1: the most notable book was his uh, revisioning psychology which was uh an integration of his lectures at yale they're called the terry lectures and this would have been in the early 70s i think the book came out in 75 yeah yeah but the the lectures were perhaps in 73 yeah and and it was a pretty daunting audience he was up against psychoanalysis he was up against american imperialism uh imperialism and empiricism both and uh you know he he had to defend himself against a critique that really didn't understand what he was doing at the time right
0: are there other people in the field uh thinkers like yourself that you would or could or might be able to have these kinds of conversations with who would uh sort of get it yes
1: yes um, there, there's a whole generation who are roughly 20 years older than I am who are well-versed in all these ideas. So okay. people people like Stan Marlin, people like Robert Romanishan, people like Mary Watkins. There, there are a number of Jungians who closely studied Hellman's ideas and were the, the first sort of generation of, you could call them archetypal psychologists. They're still heavily influenced by Jung. Yeah. But yes, there are there are a number of people who follow these ideas and who try to expand on them in their own way. Mm.
0: Okay. So because I mean, I can't help but think and wonder if let's say this concept of an ascension that a lot of people are interested in talk about, although it's like incredibly loosely defined, isn't it? Really? (laughs) It's just my experience, yeah. It depends yeah. on who you talk to, really, but sure. and 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 very few people actually even attempt to define it very accurately. Um, but there is a general notion, you know, that uh, I think most people are loosely aligned with. But if uh, if that is true and that begins to occur, it's going to have implications and ramifications for every field of endeavor and study and thought, including this one, which could be or potentially or likely might be
1: even revolutionary. Yes. I agree. It's just not a very organized field right now. And I think the the state of the world is it's it's interesting. Within within psychology, within Jungian and archetypal psychology, I think there is something of a mm, pulling away from the the style of hillman was doing which was really reacting to what was happening in the world i think i think there's a wish to understand it as sort of a closed system rather than really looking at how it applies to our current crisis which is what i'm trying to do so it's kind of like a shrinking away from tackling the big issues and and i'm not sure if hillman would well, I'm not sure what he would say about that. I think he would encourage us to look outward again and to try to use not his content, but his method. His method of seeing through, his method of critiquing and understanding the mythic and imagistic backgrounds of all these things. And And that's what I'm trying to do is apply not specifically what he said, but his way of looking at the world and his way of trying to make sense of it through a mythic or uh, imaginal lens.
0: Well, we're on the cusp now of collectively experiencing things that are completely unprecedented. Exactly. And that will require a completely unprecedented framework for understanding and interacting with and experiencing and healing and everything.
1: Yeah, and I think uh it remains to be seen how our thinking, how our theorizing and imagining and visioning are going to be impacted. You know, when when we're on the this huge cultural and global cusp, I, I think it's it's difficult to say what's mm-hmm. coming next. But I think we have to understand where we are. I think we have to imagine ourselves on this fault line or this cusp of a new age. I mean, that's your channel, right? it's, it's your framework for this whole thing, is we're moving into possibly a new dimension or at least a much broader and different world. And I don't know if everybody's really trying to tackle that. I think some people are shrinking away or looking backwards and I don't really blame them, but I, I think the challenge is to try to navigate the rapids that we're in. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was, it's
0: funny. I was literally thinking about this last night because some stuff came up in my spiritual practice uh, that I uh, need to talk about and think about more. But generally it was about this notion of paradigms this is something else i talk a lot about because i really believe it's very important and that paradigms are actually real <laughs> they're constructs that we operate and live within and they shape our they shape our experience it's like a two way thing so yes what i was feeling or experiencing or sensing last night was that that a lot of the kind of stuff that i express and find interesting and want to talk about um Are coming from a paradigm that has not fully formed or doesn't yet fully exist here on the planet and that there is a tremendous amount of resistance and inertia from the old paradigm to even allow that paradigm to exist or express itself and that that... yes go ahead sorry sorry, keep
1: going no i just i i was
0: just going to say that 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 literally manifests as like blockages
1: or limitations absolutely and the framework we, we could use could be collective or individual. You know, when, when there's a shift psychologically within an individual, there are a lot of psychological defenses that prevent that from happening. Yes. It, it's not simply I'll change how I think. And then I'm fine. There, are no. the The psyche wants equilibrium and the ego wants to be protected from these overwhelming experiences of transformation. So yeah. some people are open to that and others are, armored and bunkered, bunkered down and hiding and will annihilate the new thought, the new perspective, the new experience, the new way of being. Right. And it's not just that uh,
0: it's not just a defensive posture. It's an offensive posture. And that's the little component of this. Oh, yes. That's the component of this that I was trying to draw attention to, because I literally think that it's almost like a war, but on a, on a unconscious uh mass consciousness level energetically and so forth in this dimension uh and between it and the next there's kind of like a a struggle going on and and that that manifests in reality as people who are trying to bring forward these new ideas and thoughts and experiences um as being like literally blocked energetically
1: I think so and I think some of that is energetic some of it is psychological some of it is political but the the system is you could call it holographic it's it's hegemonic and pervasive it's ubiquitous this way of seeing reality governs most things that we do i mean globalization mm-hmm. and the plutocracy so but that plays out on every level it plays out in the individual psyche it plays out in communities Plays out in national rhetoric and propaganda. It plays out in the economic system. And that's one of the things that I've been thinking about too is how do we find, how do we name, how do we imagine this worldview that we've been in for thousands of years? And there is a there is a meta perspective that I'm using within mythology to do that. But there are lots of ways to describe this. And I don't think one is more right than another but we have to name exactly what you're doing which is that this system that's based on i mean i think we agree on this but you know based on hierarchy power and control hoarding of information and knowledge uh blind obedience that 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 patriarchal globalizing top-down authority wants to perpetuate itself
0: yeah, it's some having more and others having less, and and accepting that yes. that's legitimate and okay, which to me is complete bullshit. Yes, but it, it's it's a prerequisite for the status quo. Ah, uh, you know, you right. could add the courts, you could add uh, politics, so, and if yes. you didn't if you didn't already mention it, and well, and education uh, itself. Yeah, yeah, the way I would frame it from if I was you is I would say that that our collective consciousness has an ego
1: yeah, that's that's absolutely a legitimate move. And that's why this business of the ego needing to dissolve and recognize that it's rather an arbitrary construct and that there are many other ways of being. that's happening collectively. And, you know, I think the book that Irish granny Tarot is working on, this King's Conqueror of Psychopaths, looks at, it's it's from a very specifically political and historical perspective. But we're starting to question, just how ensouled or or lacking in soul and compassion and feeling this system really is and to what extent has that infiltrated some of our own psychology and our own relatedness to each other so
0: yeah well that I, kind I, of
1: yeah well i was going to say uh, i listen to a lot
0: of podcasts cuz uh, listening is allows me to do other things so i can multitask <laughs> so yes. uh, but i'm starting to see these kinds of questions creeping into sort of more scholarly or learned or, you know, w- amongst thinkers and stuff. We're starting to question, you know, how democracy, how do we define that? And all these kinds of things. And um, I find that interesting. Right. It's a bit telling.
1: It is. And and if you're going to name the collective ego, I think we have to look at the forces that defend it and that aggressively defend it mm. and, that, and that suppress or oppress or try to co-opt alternative worldviews and perspectives and voices so well you can describe you can define
0: this as you can define this much better than i can because you're much more learned in this uh, area but uh you know when the ego is threatened what does it do maybe people maybe i'm assuming that people understand this but maybe you could talk a little bit about what you know how the ego defends itself
1: right so i'll just before i jump into that There there are two layers of defenses that we might want to talk about. One would be ego-based defenses that are relatively under our conscious awareness and control. So when I minimize something, when I rationalize what I'm doing, when I suppress what I know I'm feeling, those are ego defenses. And for the most part, we know what we're up to. There are also much deeper unconscious defenses, some of which are trauma-based And those can be, in individual therapy, those can be extremely difficult to grapple with. So we're really talking about what we know we're up to, and also what we don't even realize we're doing in order to keep reality at bay. So what we do is, in terms of ego defenses, we deny, we rationalize, we suppress, we repress, we forget, we project onto other people if there's an aspect of myself that i don't like i see it in the other Mm. we do all kinds of things to avoid looking at our own shadow we can oppress too right oppression is a big one politically and if we think of this as a collective issue we project our shadow onto a group and then we oppress or eliminate them because they are bad they carry the shadow and therefore we are spiritually morally justified in eliminating them because they are the threat to our existence
0: yeah the ego perceives contradictory forces exactly as, as a threat and, the and, the, and, and, the world, and 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 if you yeah. don't want to accept the contradictions
1: you kill them that's right unfortunately <laughs> internally psychologically mostly that's violence to ourselves we we sequester or lock away or block important parts of ourselves. But if we apply that to the political world, then it does become very literal and sometimes very violent. So it becomes very important for us to be collectively aware of our own shadow and how we might project it onto marginalized groups. Yeah. And if we assume that the collective
0: and and when I say the collective consciousness, let's say And the united states of america has a consciousness uh you know the uk has a consciousness india has a consciousness and so on like anybody who's traveled if you're sensitive like i remember you know traveling around and i'd be like you can feel the difference in the energy from one place to another and sometimes it can be sometimes it can be quite striking and to me it's not just the land it's also the people and the culture
1: right And it's the interaction between the place, the spirits of the place, and the collective culture. So, for example, there is a Jungian Japanese analyst, first first Japanese person to study Jungian psychology in Zurich, named Hayao Kawai. And his argument in one of his books is that the Japanese ego is feminine in contrast to the Western ego, which is largely masculine, regardless of the gender of the person, and he goes through Japanese fairy tales and the sense in which their ego is more permeable, more, more receptive, more passive, more reflective, and more easily going with the flow of energy around it than the Western ego, which tends to identify the dragon in order to fight it.
0: I'm guessing the American one would be masculine.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And we live in America. We are this is this is the meta mythological perspective going back through many millennia, but throughout history, this Western masculine dominant culture is represented by an eagle, and the the other perspective, the the more receptive, the more wisdom based traditions tend to be represented by a serpent or a dragon. Interesting, including China and Japan. And there are mythologies there that their leaders, their royalty, are descended from dragons. Right. So you think you're saying the dragon
0: is more yin. Yes. And like the lion or the eagle or whatever would be
1: more or would be more masculine. Yeah, especially of, yeah. the eagle, you know, associated with Zeus, for example. But if we if we go back huh. to an earlier mythology, the eagle is the symbol of a Sumerian god named Enlil, who's this guy god. And then the serpent or the dragon is a symbol for Enki, who is his brother, who had who is the Lord of Earth. His name literally translated means Lord of Earth. And he's depicted with having one foot on shore and one foot in the water. And there was a huge battle between the Enlil forces and the Enki forces. And Enlil won. And that's become the basis for this eagle culture that we've been in for, for many years many thousands of years including roman culture which was an eagle culture great britain germany the united states all eagle cultures and and the symbol of an eagle grabbing a snake in its talons is a recurring mythological motif and it's repeated on the flags and iconography of a lot of these militaristic cultures
0: yeah germany in the 1930s comes to mind yes so
1: you know what what uh, what facing... would what, what, uh, what
0: would like South America? Would that be more feminine?
1: Yeah, it's it's more of a serpent-based culture. There's a figure of Quetzalcoatl, the, this flying serpent. So the the mythologies tend to reflect the the emphasis of the cultures, and the older ones that go back even farther tend to be more represented either by the dragon or the serpent or a serpent goddess. Well, not they, they not to Rome, more... no. Not Rome, Rome is very much an eagle culture. Yeah.
0: And and uh, the pattern and seems Attila to be, the yeah. Attila the hunt like the barbarians was that that came from the from the east.
1: It did. It did. And it's not that uh eastern cultures can't be militaristic, but but in their origins they tend to be thought of more as cultivating knowledge and wisdom rather than military might.
0: Yeah, and they were very nomadic, of course. Yes. They didn't have yes. like permanent dwellings and the
1: Huns anyway. Yeah, so so broadly, if we think of this psychologically, not just historically and political, but but psychologically, we have inherited a sky god culture, a patriarchal, top down spirit over matter, reason over emotion, masculine over feminine, humanity over the material and natural world. We of have course. a dualistic dominant mindset individually and collectively so so the yeah the and, and we then, we
0: literally went out and eradicated all of the uh, indigenous cultures around the world who were who would yes. have been more the feminine
1: side very very much so and it's not to idealize any particular point in history in any particular culture but yes the the dominant militaristic colonizing cultures do tend to wipe out the existing traditions the local traditions which often are older more indigenous less militaristic and then we lose all kinds of different ways of interacting with nature and the spirit world and you end up with uh you know destroying the biosphere that's pretty much the framework i'm using is that what we need to do is recognize the worldview that we're in because it's not simply capitalist it's not simply right today a christian it's a whole paradigm it is it's a it, it's a way of understanding reality and our place in the cosmos and it's not working yeah now i gotta ask you something just because
0: it keeps coming to my mind and maybe i need therapy myself which is quite likely true and uh, and this may be very freudian but when i think of the dragon it just to me it seems phallic for some reason.
1: I know that's I think that's um I think that's an imposition on on the older imagery. Okay. It's um that the the dragon got distorted. So if you look at the serpent in the garden of Eden, if if history is being told by the eagle culture, then the one who wants to bring knowledge, you know, what's what's lucifer mean? the light bringer. You know, so so we made it phallic and aggressive in order to justify the violence that was done to that tradition. Because that echoes, uh, that story echoes in leal and N Key. So I've just been brainwashed. We all have is the framework, is the understanding of this. So it's a it's a reversal of what the German mythologists call the Chaos Kampf War against chaos. It would be interesting.
0: I have not done this, but it would be interesting to go live in a country that had that perspective or paradigm more. And spend some time there and just see how it alters you
1: yes yes and i i think i think there are remnants and i think we're trying we're, one way of describing this and multi-layered psychic energetic this interconnectedness that we're feeling one one way of describing that is we're reawakening some you know the kundalini serpent right um mm. uh, there are there are traditions that preserve it and there are there are lots of ways in which we're kind of rediscovering it
0: a lot of people yeah a lot of people in western cultures have blocked uh root chakras yes that's a good they're not connected to the earth (laughs) yeah the muladhara yeah. yeah and that's an essential component of having something like a kundalini awakening you have to
1: have those chakras open or the energy can't flow that's right and if we're not connected at that level then we're not connected with our bodies but also the earth and the energies that the earth carries so yeah that's that's a critical disconnection isn't it
0: yeah and 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 it and it, i can't help but wonder if how deliberate that is
1: well i think the argument is that it's rather clearly deliberate and sustained over the millennia even across cultures that there's a there's a recurring battle against empowering the people you know in in the sumerian mythology enki wanted humanity to be enlightened to have knowledge you know the the symbol for aquarius was a representation of enki want, wanting to bring water to the collective meaning to bring spiritual understanding and connection yeah
0: well you can't have like uh you can't rally hundreds of thousands, thousands, millions of people to go um, on a rampage and have their heart chakras be open.
1: Well, exactly. People who are cut off from the source, if we want to call it that really broadly, are, are lost and are therefore susceptible to anything that will help them feel even a false sense of belonging. If if I'm homeless, any any home will do, any port in a storm. Right. So if, if we're cut off from our own access to source, to our own creative imagination, to our own psyche, to our own body, to our own communities, if we see everything is external to me, including my body, I mean, let's talk for half a second about how women are very deliberately disconnected from their bodies. And almost all women in Western culture have some form of body image struggle that they have to overcome. That's an attack on the sacred feminine. And it's the best way to alienate the the, the artist. Tori Amos has uh, a lot of music that talks about this. If you separate someone, if you separate a woman from her body, then you've already conquered her. Mm -hmm. So yes, chakras are a great way of depicting that, you know, if, if we're not integrated, if, if we don't have an open and, and direct flow of energy through all those different layers, we are easily susceptible to propaganda, to delusion to misinformation to false knowledge to false comfort to false leaders
0: yeah but i'm going further uh, maybe maybe uh, or perhaps we're saying the same thing but what i'm saying is that the culture itself to perpetuate that uh has to basically block out those aspects of human experience and it does so deliberately exactly yeah it reinforces it right because you can't like This is what happened with in Vietnam. (laughs) It was like, there was a lot of young people who said like, why the hell? I'm not, I don't want to go to Vietnam. Like, why, (laughs) why, what's the point of it? And first of all, I don't want to kill people. And you know, that was the first time that that had ever really occurred. And I'm sure that the powers that be were alarmed by this because they were probably thinking, well, what if we have to go to war with the USSR? (laughs) We can't have kids not wanting to do this kind of stuff.
1: That's right. And I'm—I happen to be a child of the Kent State shooting in 1970. Oh, wow. How so? My father worked at Kent State, and I was a a two-year-old child, technically, based on the the date of the shooting. I was a two-year-old playing in my sandbox a mile or two away, and my father was on campus when the National Guard opened fire and oh, killed wow. four students who were protesting. Oh my God! Wow. So the the trauma of that to my my parents, and I think you could say I was I wasn't conscious really yet I didn't know what was going on, but as I became aware of that, the the narrative was basically the governor called in the national guard and they they murdered the people who were protesting against the war and that that leaves a mark collectively along with the assassinations that were happening in the sixties between JFK and RFK and Martin mm-hmm. Luther King and Malcolm X and I guess you could probably throw in John Lennon uh, a decade later but you know when the, when the leaders and the protesters are killed that's collective trauma that that leads us to a very primitive form of survival mode that makes yeah. it very hard for us to connect with each other to connect with ourselves let alone with each other everything is brought into question democracy yes. you know uh,
0: the uh, the propaganda from the state i mean you know, the state is literally trying to kill its own citizens. Literally. And you know, you can't you don't feel secure or safe anymore. Like it just it changes everything. I mean, it's
1: alarming. Yes. Part of the trauma for my father, by the way, was the department he worked in was largely in favor of what happened. And he recalls oh. a colleague saying, They shot four, they should have shot forty. Fucking hell. Pardon me. I I No, I, I understand. This is this is So it's, it's encountering that, that violence and that authoritarian judgment in, in one's colleague, in, in someone Mm -hmm. that you have a relationship with. That you're supposed to respect. (laughs) Right. That's incredibly divisive in so many ways, energetically, psychologically, emotionally, socially. Yeah. We were polarized. And I think that left us wide open for all this manipulation that's been happening since the internet hit.
0: I have well, known, really, before that, but yeah. I have known draft dodgers. I have known people who were like hippies back in the day. And by the way, hippies have been really maligned in popular culture a lot. I agree. It infuriates me. They're made to just look like a bunch of dirty drug addicts, but you know that's not actually what it was about at all. No, that was part of the backlash. Well, that was part of the propaganda. Yeah, exactly. And you know, my the people I knew who were hippies back in the sixties and seventies, they were like harassed all the time just by the cops who would pull them over just because they had long hair.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was an organized oppression or suppression, or
0: yeah, it was scary and difficult for them. uh But you know, and so, I mean, we could go on and on and on with with that with that topic, but it's the whole see. I've been very busy with stuff lately so i haven't had as much time to read and think and listen as i normally do but there's been a couple things that i've listened to and one of the things that kind of concerns me is that there's a lot of people who think we're going to go through this ascension process and then you know we're going to be in the garden of eden suddenly and everything's going to be perfect right and i'm like uh no every aspect of reality and civilization and society and government and industry (laughs) everything has to change that's my position. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of resistance and confusion around that because, you know, theoretically at least, we've never gone through anything of this scale, not even remotely.
1: Well, right, and I, th- I think just to, to tie back into the the ego discussion and this paradigm discussion, it's going to involve a lot many people having to de-identify with the way they see reality and the way they define themselves and the way they make sense of life and the universe and everything. So, absolutely. That's, that's incredibly difficult. It's fundamental. Yeah, it's not just an awakening. Like, oh, now I see. It's it's more of a no it's parallel to the these these descent experiences we've been talking about. There's a collapse that happens. Uh, there's a book actually by a theologian called "The Dark Interval." Okay, it's by J.D. Crossan, and and he describes the collapse of the sort of traditional patriarchal personified view of God. That happened in the early 20th century to the mid 20th century, and he's saying, you know, when a story collapses, we don't just immediately take on a new one. There's an interval. There's this dark gap between collective stories that's extremely difficult to navigate. And it's it's a thin little book, but it's really important as one way to imagine what what we're up against right now. You know, as this old thing falls apart, we don't really have a, a story that we can agree on. No, we're not even we're not even ready for that. We haven't even prepared the ground for it.
0: And there's a whole significant segment of society that seems to require a very clearly defined and rigid dogmatic understanding or framework for reality, or they completely
1: freak out. Yeah, because we've been taught that from, from day one, really. Yeah. You know, the American the American school system is based on the old Russian model of raising soldiers. They wanted an obedient citizenship that just would follow orders and not question information and just do what they were told. And that's that's what the American education system is based on.
0: It's a lot more humanistic than it used to be when I was a kid.
1: Yeah. But, you know, at its heart, it's about learning facts and not learning how to imagine or challenge what we're presented with or to see through. It's, it's really not. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Like when you were talking a minute or so ago, I was thinking of the dark night of the soul.
1: Yeah, that's the other more more commonly, and I, I think it's a useful framework. I mean, and, you know, for Hillman, it's the descent into the underworld. They're, they're in shamanic traditions. It's this initiatory experience of going out into the wilderness and having having a death experience a non-literal death experience but we don't really not. there's nothing in our culture that really supports that in terms of mainstream western culture Mm. and so this this counterculture of spiritual awakening and kundalini descent and all of these transformative shamanic cultures are they're, they're starting to be focused on again but we really don't have the groundwork for something that would lead us to be able to collectively let go of this destructive thing that we've been doing for so long and start to embrace.
0: We're very fringe. We're, you yeah. know, people yes. think there's this movement out there. And I mean, like, just go, just go look on YouTube. I mean, you know, yeah, there's a few people get a few thousand views or even a few tens of thousands or something, or maybe even in the odd case, there's somebody gets a couple hundred thousand views. That's peanuts in the big scheme of things. That's just tiny.
1: Now the videos that, Get the most traction are are funny and distracting.
0: Of course, yeah, they, or they're inflammatory. That's not my point. Was just to state that.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: We're sitting here talking about this from a kind of creative perspective, but Mm -hmm. there's a huge chunk of the population that like either is completely unaware of this, or thinks that we're all crazy. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is nonsense. Yeah, this is just complete. We're all nuts. Like we're clinically delusional or something
1: yeah
0: like uh so what my point though, I mean, like uh, here's a a pragmatic example. the environmental situation is going to require us to consume a lot less yeah. right because we're we've exceeded the boundaries of the biosphere, and yes, that alone <laughs> has like ph- phenomenally dramatic implications because for generations, the state. Or our culture has been promoting consumerism, which is the exact opposite. Yeah, because that that fuels greed
1: and wealth and power. Yeah,
0: like I mean, you gotta pay for all these military toys somehow, right? So exactly. and defend your country and all that other stuff. Yeah, you have more soldiers, more workers. Yeah. Uh and you know, you can control the finance system and the dollar and the banking system and all that. Anyway, but my point is is that just that that one just that's just one small aspect of this whole equation and but it alone is completely revolutionary yes so how does humanity cope with this especially if it has to occur within a few decades
1: well and that's where i think a lot of people feel pessimistic uh, my my sense is there may be more you know when when do uh large changes happen Or you could say, how did they happen? They, they seem to happen suddenly. You know, they'll say, oh, all of a sudden this happened Mm -hmm. and, and honestly, I think there's, there's a lot of invisible activity. Some of it's psychological, some of it's energetic, you know, it's sort of like the, the, the paradigm or the image might be a, a lightning strike. So first the rain comes down and charges the ground with lots of ions. And then there's when that builds up too high, and there's an imbalance between the clouds and the earth, there's this surge upward, this invisible surge of energy, mm-hmm. and then and then the lightning strike hits. And most people just see that last dramatic boom. Yeah, but there's a lot going on before that. and And so perhaps we can't see the extent to which we're actually collectively prepared to enter some new phase. Well, we
0: could one one of the other one of the other topics on my list of things to talk about, which we didn't really agree upon, but it fits in here, is the Piscean Age. Um, ah, yeah, right. Yeah, we can talk about that. Yeah, if we go back, you know, two thousand or twenty one hundred years ago, or twenty two, whatever, it's generally considered to be around the time of Christ. People mm-hmm. associate with the beginning of the Piscean Age.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So. Um, at that time, there would have been some people aware of this phenomenon of Christ and and his teachings and worldview, right, which was quite radically different than the dominant cultures right. at the time. Uh, but for most of the world, it was probably business as usual. Yes, I agree. So, so how long did that transition actually occur over? Was it four hundred years, five hundred years, six hundred, like? yeah perhaps so you know uh I don't but but the difference is now at this point in time we have this from my perspective the biggest crisis that humanity has ever faced bar none bigger than yep. the World Wars and whatnot which is the environmental crisis because yeah the implications could last for millennia
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh and we have to deal with it like yesterday
1: Yeah, yesterday would have been good
0: Yeah, and and that's another interesting thing about Aquarius, too, with its modern ruler of Uranus. Things Mm -hmm. happen very quickly, (laughs) right? Right. Pisces is kind of like, yeah, we're chilling out. We're just, you know, being receptive and everything. Uranus is like, bam. (laughs) So, and it's like lightning, just like you were talking about. So what I'm saying is that it's possible that the shift into the Aquarian age is just going to come through a series of sharp and sudden Dramatic events and shifts in consciousness that are unprecedented. Exactly. And so there is no analogue for what is occurring now.
1: Because there can't be.
0: Right. Yeah. So, but that can be Uranus can be very shocking, right? It can literally create Mm -hmm. trauma. Traumatic events that are so shocking and dramatic that you're just kind of going, like, what the F happened? Today, yes, right.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm in the sub generation that has Pluto conjunct Uranus, and uh and I happen to have it in the 12th house. So one part of part of the Monday narrative about that is that you may be susceptible to electrocution, and that's actually happened to me a couple of times.
0: Very interesting. Shocking. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in the. I'm not too far off from you, so I I have that conjunction as well, but it mines in the sixth. Uh, yeah. So. Your service and my unconscious but it always it 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 always involves like dramatic and shocking experiences there's a lot of that isn't there
1: yeah and i i think it's impossible to prepare for the unexpected by definition but but i think if we recognize that we need something to change i think there is awareness of that i think there have been shocking disclosures including this uh ufo disclosure in the states we we don't really know what that is but Regardless of what the truth ends up being, it is utterly shocking for many, many people.
0: Yeah, the disclosure that disclosure, if it's official and can be, you know, documented as such, right? That right. is uh, history changing. Exactly. It 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 like I would not want to be somebody who was dogmatically religious or a fundamentalist or something, and right. have have to cope with that understanding because it would just contradict my entire worldview
1: yeah and i think there's been awareness of that for quite some time if you follow this historically the the term ontological shock has been what they're worried about Mm. and that once we learn that we're not the only sentient beings in the universe there could be a radical cosmological crisis for a lot of people who don't understand how that could be
0: well it won't be a problem for me directly unless they go go crazy and threaten me somehow
1: well I, i understand and the reframe in in some circles within the religious community is that some of these stories of angels were about visitation. So it's, it's, it's fascinating that, that the other perspective has been around for a bit, but it is certainly not mainstream. And for most people, this is so mind boggling that it's, it can't be processed. You know, the ego you could say is defended against the new information. We cannot accommodate, we can't expand our awareness to accommodate even the possibility that some of this might be true. So we kind of shut down. What will Mike Pence do? Right. I, I don't even pretend to know how to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's it's a challenge for everyone individually, and it is a challenge for the status quo. And this is this is part of some grand plan, you know. If it's if this is misinformation, but but I, I guess for me, it's I do think we're primed now to I think people, even when they're not consciously aware of it, are are ready for some radical change or desperate for some kind of radical change and maybe well, that some of us wish to be rescued some of us not all of us i don't think i think there's a whole bunch of us
0: who don't want any change at all <laughs> in fact they want to go backwards well
1: and that's that's part of you know the a radical shift to the past is is also a sudden and sort of violent solution i think i think people are desperate you know, these insurrections that have happened here, here where I live in Michigan, um, you know, they were planning to kidnap the governor. Right. And then, you know, January 6th. And so whether it's revolution or backlash or culture wars, I, I think there's a, an agitated collective feeling right now, and nothing can prepare us for whatever the Aquarian age might hold. I mean, people are trying to predict it. They're saying AI, they're saying alien disclosure, they're saying, new mm. economic system they're saying spiritual awakening ah, come on and a like dimension.
0: like come on like I know. come on it, I know. the environmental I know. thing it's just like magnitude it's more significant than I know. all that
1: stuff it's not even
0: it's not even in the same universe it, it
1: it isn't and i think that's why it's going to happen alternative...
0: guaranteed and it's guaranteed yes. and it's going to affect It's going to affect every organism on the planet, (laughs) everything. Yeah, and as you've
1: said, we're already in it. This is not speculative at this point. No.
0: We're already in it. No, in fact, I mean, the news lately has just been kind of like, oh, my God. In fact, you know, I like to think about deep subjects, and uh, I've been drawn back to this issue again because the news that's been coming out is quite grim, and, you know, we seem to be way ahead of even the worst-case scenarios.
1: Exactly. So I think a lesser crisis is almost welcome, but I think people do understand to the extent that anyone's paying paying attention, even the mainstream news in the States, they know that there's an environmental crisis and they know on some level that something big has to happen. If that's something terrible or if that's something wonderful and totally unexpected, as if we could figure out what to do about carbon emissions or something. But I think there's a wish for the big event and and a, a dread that's attached to that too. So yeah, I agree. I'm not disagreeing. With right. You. Yeah, so it's but it's just difficult.
0: Yeah, I don't mean to suggest that AI and other topics aren't important. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying oh, that I, know. I know. overshadowing I everything because civilization itself is in question. You know, we won't have like there'll be AI running in a bunker underground somewhere like, you know, who cares. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like right. what whatever I mean, you know, in the worst case scenarios um uh you know, um, geez, I we went off on a tangent there. There was something else I wanted to Were you talking about um the Piscean Age? Yeah, we didn't really finish because I wanted to see what you thought about that. Oh, well, let me say one other thing about the Piscean Age. I've focused a lot of, on Pluto and Aquarius because to me, when Pluto and Uranus conjuncted in the 1960s it was really a huge time and very influential we probably wouldn't be having this conversation if it wasn't for that and so now we have pluto in the sign of uranus or very soon will be more permanently and to me that's kind of a hallmark of the age of aquarius and it's dawning
1: yeah that's a nice point to make especially with uranus in a in a supposedly steady sign like oris right now that that makes sense to me. That there's something transformative toward that new Aquarian kind of energy.
0: Yeah, Uranus is very fast and sh- and sharp and
1: sudden and dramatic. Right, but Pluto is is activating the change. The yeah. shift and
0: in a in a in a very powerful and deep and also very dramatic and profound way. I mean, Pluto was very psychological
1: yeah i agree that's part of my understanding of it as well i have it in the 12th so it i think it's it's partly um the energy that i draw on when i'm in uh, understanding things on a deeper psychological level you know the insight
0: it's not surprising that a lot of the themes and issues that we're discussing are these days are around politics social order uh Mm -hmm. culture Mm -hmm. wars and things like that yep and propaganda and disinformation and illusion and deception and Exactly. And attempts to impose uh, worldviews on others and things like that. And and you, and you using underhanded uh, means to, to do it. Yeah, and you've explored the role of Neptune and all this, too. Yeah, the illusionary side of it.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: There's one other thing that came up, too. But yeah, you didn't... I mean, do you have anything else to say about uh, the Piscean H topic?
1: Well, I think the interesting part for me is that you're moving away from sort of the you know, the nodes of Pluto have been in the North Node is currently in Cancer, the South Node of Pluto is still in Capricorn. So we're moving away from this sort of institutional hierarchical patriarchal control. And it's interesting to me that, that was that's been in place during the Piscean age. So it wasn't just about spirituality and collective feeling, it was about using that to serve this Capricornian hierarchy. Because we what we've had is religious power you know the roman catholic church yeah the institution yes exactly exactly so in in that sense i don't know that we got the 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 positive side of of pisces i mean it's certainly been there but there's been a lot of shadow in that right and and christianity
0: is not alone in its scope exactly you know, the Muslim community is extremely large, too. Yeah. Yep.
1: But if, if the Aquarian shift is toward a leveling and a distribution of all of that, and, and it's more of a collective activity of working together, I, I think that could be a positive shift, especially since, and you've posted about this, too, but. The U.S. just had its Pluto return, and and that's dissolving this particular empire. Who knows what is mm-hmm. next after that? But if there's a leveling that's happening, while that vertical, you know, the the military power in the world is having its, you know, seismic events, maybe that could be positive in the future too. Yeah, we want.
0: Uh, there's so many things at play that it's extremely hard to predict. Yeah. There is some astrological evidence that Pluto returns mark the end of empires. Exactly. That's my understanding, too. But, but they don't occur over a few years. They often occur over a few generations.
1: Yeah, so we're not going to see it.
0: No, 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 no. It's not like suddenly, you know, right. France wasn't ruling the world anymore or Spain or whatever. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It took a long time to unwind. I mean, the UK was... Was a superpower too at one point right exactly and now look at it (laughs) Mm -hmm. but but uh there's one other point that came up early on in this conversation that i wanted to talk about and it's a little bit tangential but not terribly
1: okay
0: yes so i was fortunate when i was young and i mean like in my early early 20s that i had a friend who was a scholar and his whole focus was academia he Studied many different subjects and was really gifted. And very thankfully, he was willing to spend a lot of time talking to me and introducing me to a lot of concepts, including esotericism. I see. And one of the things that I learned early on in the many, many hours of conversation I had with him, and there must have been hundreds, if not even thousands of them, was that we would spend a great deal of time defining terms. So let's take, for example, ascension. What does ascension mean? Well, I can use that word and you can use that word, but they might mean totally different things. Yep. Yep. We think we're communicating accurately, but in fact we're not, because mm-hmm. we haven't defined our terminology accurately. Now, scholars like yourself are more familiar with this because you know that in academia, when you want to talk to somebody, if you If you reference something or use a particular term or word that the other person you're speaking to probably has a similar definition for that term, but in common or more generic uh, situations Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. YouTube or whatever, I suspect that there is a phenomenal amount of miscommunication and misunderstanding that people aren't even aware of because we throw around all of these terms all the time that nobody has a clear definition for really. Now, somebody might say, well, you're just going to ruin the spontaneity of it or whatever. But I'm saying that, no, if we don't have common understandings, then we're not actually communicating really at all. We're talking over or under each other. And so, you know, you could do a whole episode just defining what the word ascension means. But I think this is very important because, and other people may not care, but we probably should. What do you think about that?
1: Well, I think it's true. I mean, it, even if you're in the same field, in a, in a given academic discipline, you can be using the same term differently and not realize it. So it's it's always good to define, especially big terms like that. You know, what is love? <laughs> <You know. laughs> volumes have been written on that The big yeah the bigger the bigger the idea the bigger the term mm. the more layers it has the more cultural and historical baggage so i'm interested in what you would say because it's not really my primary focus i'm i'm concerned with imminence and the the valleys of human experience and how those open up to spirit but but this is this is a area you've been working in for a long time so what what is your definition
0: oh well i don't need to define that term
1: right now that's uh, in fact okay but yes i agree with you on principle yes like philosophically philosophically Philosophically, it's critical yeah
0: yeah yeah, because because um it's part of illusion you know if 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 i'm saying something and what you're hearing is completely different from what i'm saying that's illusion Mm -hmm. And I I just think it's something that people don't like someone like Helen with her channel, Irish Granny Tarot. She's quite Ah, detailed and articulate and careful. And that's one of the reasons I respect her is because she's diligent about these things. Like she'll do a whole episode on a topic and go into all kinds of detail. And, you know, some people gravitate towards that and other people don't. Um, But I respect it. And I I, I'm not sure why I bring it up. It's something in our early in our conversation triggered the thought. Um,
1: well, we were talking about reincarnation, for example.
0: Yeah, I, I just wanted to make the point that I think that a lot of us are talking about things, thinking that we know what we're saying to each other, but when in fact we're
1: not. <laughs> well, yeah, especially if you think about online communities where people often don't know each other don't have a shared life experience, Don't often don't even speak the same first language. So uh, we think of it as very connective, connecting, but it's bringing together a lot of strangers from a lot of different perspectives, and the format doesn't lend itself to finding common ground or defining terms or getting to know the the messenger and not just the message that they just typed in.
0: Doesn't that, therefore, can we not ex- extrapolate from that that it is therefore superficial?
1: That would be my argument. It can it can go deeper in certain kinds of closed groups and communities that build up a discourse and reach some shared understandings. But by and large, I think it's bump cars.
0: Yeah, well that's why I that is why and some people may not understand this about me and my channel, but that's why I respect people like you who are academics. Because you you're disciplined You've put a lot of thought and time and energy into, even if you don't necessarily agree with it, you you understand the framework that you're dealing with.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of Saturn in academia, and even in the models that I was trained in that are more wide open, There, there is an expectation of being thorough, being grounded in historical references, using analysis and reason and logic, as well as imagination and intuition right so i i respect people who manage to integrate that that's also why i think um irish granite tarot is is well balanced because she has this intuitive psychic side and she's very thorough and scholarly really in her uh research so i think that's the challenge for everybody is to imagine broadly and then to think clearly and it doesn't happen automatically so yes I mean, the the shadow of academia is then it narrows thinking right to the point that uh, you know if you think of Thomas Kuhn's book on on paradigm shifts, scholars in academia are very closed off to alternative perspectives. Mm-hmm. Can be mm-hmm. a few are maverick and and take the field in a different direction, but initially they're often ridiculed, marginalized, ignored, uh, and it's because. An academic career means building an edifice to to a few key ideas. And if, if one of those four ideas is questioned, it kind of threatens to topple the ivory tower. So uh, I respect the academics who are also broad-minded and flexible and prepared to entertain not just a different hypothesis, but a whole new paradigm or perspective on things. Because sometimes that's what's necessary. Yeah, I you don't want to block new information that's yeah. that's the dialectic is is between broad thinking and 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 innovative thinking and then also careful investigation of ideas
0: yeah like you don't want to be rigidly dogmatic I mean I don't respect that either but I do respect the diligence and the rigor and you know sure again sure. Again, again talking about Irish granny like I listened to her I listened to something she published the other day because it had to deal with because it dealt with uh, the water crisis. And oh. that's kind of in my wheelhouse of interests. So mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. as I was listening to her, I was thinking, like, oh, what an amazing teacher she would have been. I don't know if she did teach previously or not, but she'd be an incredible teacher. I totally agree, yeah, because she's passionate and engaging and also diligent and rigorous
1: when what I told her in a in a, a private message an email was um she she has the scholarly skills without the inflated academic ego <laughs> right <laughs> it makes a big difference yeah 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 because then you're not attached to your idea because it's your idea you're you're passionate about it because it's interesting and it opens up new possibilities yeah it's not about preserving your status 100 percent, right? <laughs> exactly yeah. like
0: that's a very egoic but yes now i don't know why i went i don't know why i went down this rabbit hole it's just that i just hear so much stuff and i'm like oh my god there's like there's more assumptions being made here than there are statements
1: yeah that's probably fair man i I think it varies but yes i I think rigor is important and you know you you need in, in greek mythology you know you need mercurial flexibility you also need epilonic clarity and you need Saturnian discipline. I mean, you you need these different archetypal energies in order to adequately look at anything, really.
0: Well, to some people, that probably doesn't sound like fun. I suppose not. But to me, it kind of is, and probably to you.
1: Well, the Mercury part is great. I mean, I'm a Gemini, so you know that that um, flexibility is built in, and I have a hard square to Saturn in my chart. But but I've learned to incorporate it, I've learned to respect it. And in the integration of the two, you know, Hillman would call that Senex and Puer in Latin. It's sort of the, the old, the wise old man, and the eternal youth. And there's a dynamic between the two. There's a relationship between Peter Pan and the, the authority figure. There's mm-hmm. a there's a mm-hmm. positive dialectic between those two kinds of energies. Mm-hmm. Because we can't get weighed down with lead and we also can't float away on the breeze and hermetic madness so it's, no
0: especially at, especially at this point in history where where we have so many major decisions to make and we have to make the best
1: uh, ones and we have to do them quickly so um yeah and it takes dialogue between the people that represent those energies and respect for the other way of thinking right
0: yeah, well, I mean, we could go on and on and on about this, but uh, we have been talking for more than two hours. Yep. Uh, it might be appropriate to wind down. Like, I don't know how we're doing with yes. respect to your list.
1: <laughs> I think we got to a lot of my list. Actually. Oh, <laughs> we, we did it in mercurial fashion, but we definitely touched on really all the major... What I wanted to do is tie in this idea of individual transformation with this massive challenge of collective transformation. I think we did that pretty thoroughly. You're satisfied. I hope so. Your audience, your, your listeners will tell us if we didn't.
0: Thanks very much, Scott, for coming back on my channel again. It's sure interesting to speak with you. I mean, I could go off on so many different uh, subjects or
1: tangents. It's, it's endless. I, I enjoyed it a lot. I mean, this is, this is exciting for me to be able to talk about things that I, Usually work on individually and and privately. So this this is fun for me. Me too, clearly. Um, if we were to do it again,
0: uh, if if we are if we feeling so inclined, mm-hmm. we should ask uh, our listeners to you know throw things out there if they have topics or questions in mind or things they want That's us to think idea. about. And I so I invite people to do that. If you're listening to this and there's stuff that we glossed over or didn't touch on uh, put a comment uh, under the video and uh, we'll add it to the list for the next conversation excellent all right scott thank you very much thank you take care very much to you we'll be in touch okay Bye.
1: bye bye
0: i'll put links in the episode description to any related content And if you're interested in a reading with me, I'll put a link to that as well. Many sincere thanks to everyone who supports me, especially my YouTube members. Thank you very much. Take care, all the best, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye for now.